Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the place at Freightways where we talk about oil, which needs to be drilled. That's how this podcast got its name. It is also the place where we talk about pretty much anything we want to talk about. Today, we're going to be talking about the final mile and specifically the final mile in an urban setting. We'll talk about one of the ways that the final mile gets served in that sort of high congestion area with a woman who I saw present on the subject last week at the Transportation Research Board. She's going to be here in just a few minutes. We've talked about the price of diesel every week for a while, so we'll take a pass today as we kick off the podcast with our usual banter about petroleum. What caught my eye this week instead for this audience was a report about renewable diesel and how it might not be quite the new source of fuel that has been boasted about, at least in terms of supply. Just to clarify up front, renewable diesel is not the same thing as biodiesel. Biodiesel is a less complex fuel that can be blended into diesel or heating oil, but at limited amounts. Too much of it can create problems, especially in extremely cold weather in a truck. Renewable diesel is made through a refining process, and it's known as a drop-in fuel. It's called that because you can just drop it into an existing use, replacing regular diesel without any difficulties or technical problems. Both biodiesel and renewable diesel are made from the same feedstocks like soybean oil or restaurant grease. Lots of companies have announced plans to add renewable diesel capabilities in the U.S., there are some very strong government incentives to make renewable diesel, particularly in California with its low carbon fuel standard. In some cases, like Phillips 66 plant near San Francisco, entire refineries have been shut down for economic reasons, but they've been partially replaced with new facilities on site to make renewable diesel. Of course, the amount of renewable diesel coming out of the plant is generally not as much as the regular diesel that comes out of a fully operating refinery, but from the perspective of buyers, it is some compensation for the loss of the regular refinery. There were news reports this week that a consulting company called Serology, C-E-R-U-L-O-G-Y, I hope to the people at Serology, I'm pronouncing your company's name right, that they released a report that cast doubt on some of the more ambitious forecasts of how much renewable diesel capacity is going to be added. The U.S. Energy Information Administration, which is an arm of the Department of Energy, has estimated that by 2024, that's not that far away, U.S. capacity to make renewable diesel is going to go up 500% from 1 billion gallons now per year to 5 billion gallons per year now, to 5 billion gallons per year in 2025. Let's put that into perspective. At 5 billion gallons total capacity per year, that's about 325,000 barrels per day. Consumption of all distillates in the U.S., except for jet fuel, tends to range anywhere from 4 million barrels per day to maybe 4.5 million barrels per day. So we're talking here about a gain of less than 10% in supply. Still, with refineries closing, it's nothing to scoff at. But according to the report from Reuters, which apparently got a hold, not apparently, they did, they got a hold of the serology report, the consulting firm sees capacity by 2025 at only 2 billion gallons of renewable diesel in the U.S. That means they also see 2 billion gallons of projects for new capacity being delayed or canceled. The only way to get to that level would be to displace a lot of feedstock that is now going into biodiesel. As noted, a truck can't burn biodiesel straight away. It can only be blended. But if you take away feedstock from biodiesel and divert them into renewable diesel, from the perspective of truckers, it might be a bit better because feedstocks that are used to make biodiesel for heating oil would instead be going into renewable diesel. But you know what? That's quibbling over small things. The main point is the re in the report is that it is forecasting that the supply of feedstocks like soy oil or cooking grease are not going to be there 
to make 5 billion gallons per year of renewable diesel. And that doesn't even get into the question of burning food to make fuel. Obviously, restaurant grease is not food, but certainly soybeans are. There's always been a criticism of ethanol, that the corn being used to make ethanol could be used either as food directly or more likely as a feedstock for animals like cows and pigs. That even is an issue for aquaculture. I remember when the price of oil, corn, and ethanol got to just crazy levels in the late 2000s, there were salmon farms that shut down. They couldn't afford the feedstock anymore, and they used corn to feed a lot of their fish. There's been a lot of things going on recently that can call into question the push for renewable fuels. Europe is in the midst of an energy crisis, and its heavy investment in wind and solar is not pulling it out of that mess. And when the rush to renewables is accompanied by the elimination of nuclear power, as has been done in Germany, it's a double whammy for consumers. Renewable diesel at least had the prospect of benefiting the transportation industry, but it may not be quite the windfall that it was first supposed to be. We're going to move on to our guest of the week. I attended the Transportation Research Board annual meeting in Washington last week. And in fact, for you regular listeners of Drilling Deep, you'll know that I did my interview for the podcast league from last week from there with Bob Rohde on user-based mileage fees. Now, soon after that, I did that interview. I sat in on a session that was regarding not just final mile, but final mile in urban settings, which is a, a subject that always really fascinates me. Uh, what made it so interesting is that, you know, you think of final mile issues in terms of just drivers and logistics and Amazon and all that. But at a session like this, the one that I sat in on, you find that there are other things going on in the field that are trying to solve these really big questions. In a presentation that dealt with one aspect of the final mile, about as final mile as you can get, uh, our guest uh, this week, Andeshay Ranjbari of Penn State, gave a talk about where to put these products that are being delivered to your doorstep. Do they just lay in front of the door? How about leaving them with the doorman? Or you can stick them in a locker. And lockers is what she talked about. And it may sound uninteresting. Stick with us because you're going to like what we're going to talk about. Uh, as an assistant professor of civil engineering at Penn State, she and some colleagues actually had her prior position in Washington. They did a lot of work on that issue. And I wanted to have her here to join me on Drilling Deep. So, Andeshe, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So what led you to study this you know, from the outside, what looks like a very, very small part of the Final Mile Challenge? Yeah, well, with the boom of e-commerce, I think at this point, it's obvious to everyone that there has been a spike in urban deliveries, online shopping, and uh, mostly home deliveries. So one of the solutions that really emerged in the past couple of years as something that can reduce delivery times and urban congestion is parcel lockers. So if you think about it, uh, delivery carriers spend a lot of time delivering packages door to door and floor to floor in the buildings, especially when we're talking about multi-story residential buildings where there are a lot of residents and a lot of packages. So lockers provide a central hub that instead of going floor to floor and door to door to deliver packages, everything can be delivered in that central hub and it significantly reduces the time that delivery carriers spend inside the building. And as a result, it also reduces the time that their vehicle is parked at the curb. So uh, it creates efficiency for commercial firms because as I mentioned, it saves them time. Uh, it also creates efficiency for the network because by vehicles being parked at the curb for less time, it frees up more space for other vehicles to, to find a place to park there. 
Um, it also provides efficiency uh, for building management and residents, and we can talk about those and the results of the study that we found. So really, there are several benefits to parcel lockers as a solution to the last mile of delivery, and uh, we were very intrigued with this subject, and we started to do a study about that. Well, so it takes two to tango, and you did make reference there, a glancing reference there to the uh, the benefits for the residents and the building. Obviously, mm-hmm. the there are benefits. I can understand the benefits to the parcel company that is making the deliveries. But if uh, why would I? What's what's the incentive for the building to put in the the locker? And, so, and, and, and and the incentive for the residents to say, yeah, that's okay, do that. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, you can you can think about it from a security standpoint. So lockers provide a secure, automated. Um, hub for residents to to retrieve their packages at their convenience. So for example, if you have a if you have a package being delivered to you and you're not at home, you don't have to worry about where your package is put, would you would you lose it? Would it be would it get stolen or some or so on and so forth. So it just it provides a secure place for your package and then you can retrieve it when you get home at your convenience. For from the perspective of building management, um, if you think about uh, the buildings without lockers, Either uh, delivery couriers enter the building and go to different floors uh, to deliver the packages. And that's something that some of the building management do not like. They don't like uh, delivery carriers to go to different floors. Or they just enter the building and deliver everything uh, to some place like the lobby of the building. And then it's the responsibility of the resident manager to pick up those packages and deliver them to, to the residents which creates additional load for them. So it does provide benefits to both the residents and the building management. Right, so the way that this would get installed, I mean, who, who's going to call the shots here? Because if a building, a building I'm sure will get packages from Amazon, they'll get packages from UPS or FedEx or anybody else, you know, anybody that's got their own e-commerce channel where they're doing deliveries uh, and independent couriers. Who makes the decision to put in the locker? I guess it has to be the building management. You can't do it without the building management. But what does the shipper, what does the e-commerce delivery company do to incentivize it? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the call is made by the building management. They are the people who need to um, who need to uh, make the call on this. Uh, and the lockers that I was talking about in, in, in this research, they are what we called uh, common carrier parcel lockers. So unlike those that are exclusive to Amazon, lock, to Amazon, for example, these lockers can receive packages from any carrier. So they are there in the building and any carrier can deliver to those packages. Now, the way it works is that these locker operator companies, they have uh, a carrier relation team. And they, uh, they reach out to all of the carriers. They provide them with instruction on how to deliver to these lockers. So basically, those lockers are there, the storage unit that all of the carriers from either the big shippers that we all know about, like UPS, USPS, Amazon, or smaller shippers. They can deliver to those uh, locker. And the way it works is that uh, the parcel locker, carrier, the parcel locker uh, operators, when they reach out to carriers, they provide them with an access code. And so when they go to the building and they have a package to deliver, basically they scan the barcode on the package and they enter their access code uh, on the digital keypad of the locker. And then they place the package in one of the appropriate size uh, uh, for, for the cells in the locker. And at the same time, 
the resident um, receive a notification, either a text or an email, that their package is being delivered and they will then go to the locker and receive their package. All right, let's go from the theoretical to the practical, not so much the practical, but the reality. How much of this is getting done now? Well, um, in in most of the big cities, and especially the the apartments that are in the core downtown areas, so uh, basically where there is there are the issues of congestion and uh, parking and so on. Most of the buildings that I know in the in the big cities, they are actually either they either have the lockers or they are thinking about installing those. I'm not entirely sure about the smaller cities and how uh, how much of these solutions are being implemented in those cities, but at least in Seattle and the uh, the areas around that, like uh, Bellevue and Redmond and those areas that I know, uh, most of the apartment buildings in the in the downtown areas, they had uh, lockers or they were thinking about installing a locker, which was very encouraging to see that people are thinking about these solutions. Now let's point out that you did your research in Seattle at the time you were a faculty member. Was it was it at the University of Washington? I was at University of Washington. I was not a faculty member though. Uh, okay. there, I was director of the Abraham Place app at the University of Washington. I see. Okay. So uh but so you were you were at least you, you could be considered an academic. So, yes. so you, did, you, you did your research in in Seattle. You did your research mm -hmm. in Seattle. That's why you just made the references to that city. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what some of your basic findings were? I mean, you, you talked a little bit before, but in those in those units that had the that had the lockers, as opposed to those who didn't, how much? What, what were the benefits? Was everybody happy? Yeah, well, so there were multiple findings. So um, I can tell you some of them from the um, from the perspective of the operation, and then some of them from the perspective of the users, which were actually the residents uh, or billing management. So from the uh, from the commercial uh, operators, what we did, and this uh, this was um, so this was part of a huge study, and these were different findings from different um, parts of that research. But from the from the perspective of the operation, we actually found that delivering to the locker reduces the time that carriers spend inside the building by fifty percent, which is which is a significant number. Um, and in order to do that, we didn't just look at the before and after for that building. We collected the data for a very similar uh, nearby building, which we called it a control building. And then we collected uh, a comprehensive set of data for both of those buildings, the one with the locker and without the locker, and then made a comparison. So we found that in a nutshell, the, the time spent inside the building was significantly reduced by 50%. We also found that the time that delivery vehicles spent parked at the curb was also reduced by about 30%. Now, that is from the operation perspective. We also did a survey of the residents to know that uh, to know how happy or unhappy they were with the locker. And uh, it was very interesting because, uh, especially at the beginning, I know that from our conversation with the building management, they mentioned that some of the residents were not uh, really for this idea. In fact, they were they were saying that I do prefer the packages being delivered to my doorstep and I don't want to come down to the lobby to pick up that package. But um, once we did the survey a couple months after the locker operation was stable, 96% of the residents, the majority of them, they expressed uh, satisfaction with the locker. And uh, the building management also said that 
uh, the load of the resident manager was reduced by about 90%. And so overall, they and the residents were happy enough with the, with the pilot that they actually decided to keep the locker beyond our study. Now, you, you made a, a quick reference to companies that do this. I gather if, if you're a, an apartment building and you want to bring in lockers, you c- contract with a, with a third party, a company that does this activity? Right. Yes. So the research that we did was actually sponsored by the Department of Energy. So we had the funding from them to work with a locker company and install the locker. And uh, so that's what we did. But for uh, for any building management uh, who, who they want to install a locker in their lobby, yes, there are locker provider companies that they will work with, install the locker, and then they, they're also responsible for uh, contacting the carriers to give them instructions for delivering to the locker as well as maintaining the locker. I see. Let me ask you about, I'm going to ask a very kind of self-centered question here. You mm-hmm. and I were chatting before. Uh, I live in the suburbs, so nobody's going to put a lock. I mean, I, my locker is my mailbox, um, but I've noticed some lockers around. One mm-hmm. at a fast food restaurant that I occasionally frequent, uh, and the other I've seen in a 7-Eleven. And I think they are dedicated Amazon facilities. So uh, what's their future? I, I've never, even though we get plenty of Amazon products delivered here at our house, I've never been approached about, would you rather have a locker? I mean, who uses those lockers? Do they have value in an area that's not dense, in which a single family home is the, the, the primary type of residence? Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, the research that specifically you and I talked about um, is the one that we did for a residential building. But there are different type of these parcel lockers. And the one that you're actually referring to are something that we call neighborhood parcel lockers. So yes, in so those residential building uh, lockers, they are, for example, in the lobby of the building and they are only exclusive uh, for the exclusive use of the residents. But those neighborhood lockers, they are in an area and everyone who signs up for those lockers can actually use them. Now, there are different ways that they are being used. For example, there are some of them in Whole Foods, for example, that are for exclusive use of Amazon. And if you deliver a package online, you can either choose for the package to be delivered to you at your doorstep, or you can say that I'm going to actually go pick it up at Whole Foods. And so they will be stored in those lockers there. But there are also other type of lockers, which are common carrier, again, open to all of the carriers, not only for exclusive use of a specific um, shipper. And the way those work is that usually there's a barcode, uh, there's a QR code uh, on the on the locker or some uh, some website that you can register for the locker. And then when you order a package online and uh, you're not home and you want your package to be delivered uh, in a safe and secure place, you can put the address of that locker and your package will be delivered to that one. Actually, uh, in another study that we did in Seattle again, we did have one of those neighborhood lockers. And uh, we, what, the way we approached that was that we sent out an uh, invitation to all of the residents living nearby in the neighborhood. And we invited them, if they're interested, to sign up for the locker and use this as a secure place for storing their packages. Yeah. Um, one thing I found interesting in your presentation is that it's easy to say, well, lockers are good, but lockers are not easily defined. I mean, you can, you can have a common carrier locker, as you describe it, some with lots of little boxes and maybe not as many big boxes. 
big lockers or big slots, whatever you want to call them. And then you can have another setup with lots of big ones and maybe mm-hmm. some medium ones and small ones. This is not a small decision to make, is it? I mean, you've if, if you're <laughs> going to put one of these things in, you've got to figure out how many small slots do we have, how many big ones do we have, and how many in between. Yeah. So actually, uh, the reason that we started that research, trying to figure out what the right size for a residential locker is, for a residential building locker is, uh, came from the fact that when we wanted to uh, do a pilot of that locker in that residential building that I mentioned, we had this discussion of, okay, we want to put this locker in the lobby, but what should be the size of that? So at the table, there was us, the researchers, there was the building management, and then there was the locker operator uh, company. So uh, we we had different ideas of what should be a good size for the locker. And because of the novelty of these uh, common carrier parcel lockers, there's not enough research. Uh, actually, there is, to the best of my knowledge, there is no research about what should be the good size um, for the locker. So uh, the locker operator company had some suggestions. We had some suggestions. And then uh, the building management had their own suggestion of what would be a good size. And um, eventually we went with the suggestion of the building management because the resident manager was the person who was dealing with all of the packages being left in the lobby of the building. And they were also uh, observing uh, the number of packages coming into the building. So uh, we believe that they had a good idea of the size and the number of packages that being uh, delivered to the building. So uh, they suggested something and uh, we went with that suggestion knowing that, okay, if it didn't eventually work, we can always swap one of the uh, one of the towers of the building with different tower and change the configuration of those, um, those cells, adding more smaller or larger cells to the locker. But to our pleasant surprise, it turned out that they did actually have a very good understanding of um, the frequency and the size of the packages arriving at the building because it resulted in almost zero packages overflowing to the lobby, even during the holiday season, and uh, a reasonable occupancy for the locker. Where if we actually went with our suggestion or the locker operator company suggestion, it would not be the case. <laughs> Uh, what does an academic do when you've got research like this that is very practical, I think, in its recommendations, or at least, I don't know if I'll call them recommendations, but their findings. Who do you give it to to say, hey, look at this? Yeah, well, actually, it's it's very enjoyable to do research that has practical implications. And um, uh, not that the theoretical, theoretical research is not interesting, but there's just another side of this that uh, it, it gets you more excited when you do this. Uh, so we try to give these recommendations to the people who can benefit from this. So, for example, for the two parts of this research that I mentioned to you, the one that uh, that was about finding the right size for the locker, we provide this recommendation to the locker operator companies because they work a lot with uh, residential buildings, commercial buildings, and uh, it's important for them to know what a good size locker is. For the other research that I mentioned that we actually found that there is a significant decrease in the time spent inside the building or the time that vehicles park at the curb, we give that recommendation to to the cities and also to the carriers. And um, we just show them that if, so for example, um, if you're a carrier and you see that if uh, you're delivering to a building with the locker, 
uh, you can save that much time and you can actually use that time for delivering more packages to more buildings or more uh, destinations, then maybe you have an incentive in investing in the lockers. And if you're a city planner or a policymaker and uh, you're having issues with parking spaces, which we actually know that these days there's a, there's a hot competition going on about parking spaces in dense areas. So if you see that uh, you can reduce the time that uh, delivery vehicles stay parked at the curb uh, by providing uh, lockers into the residential or other multi-story, maybe commercial buildings, then you incentivize that and you encourage them or you develop policies that, um, that encourage that implementation. Uh, I'd love to keep talking because this is fascinating, but I'm, uh, I'm going to wrap up with one final question. You mentioned that you were uh, the director of urban, the Urban Freight Lab, I think you called mm -hmm. it, at the University of Washington. The presentation at TRB that I saw you at was about urban freight. What are some of the other developments that really excite you in urban freight? I know right after you spoke uh, at TRB, there was a presentation on cargo bikes. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'd like a job as a cargo bike deliverer. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Uh, but, <laughs> that would uh, be, yeah. Yeah, That's exciting. I, I always, whenever I would be, be in a town where particularly like if I was down, like I remember seeing the first time I think I saw it was in Miami, a, a police officer whose job was to patrol on his bike and he's wearing shorts and everything. I thought, what a great job. Anyway, <laughs> um, what, what are some of the other urban freight developments that you that are exciting you right now? Yeah, and thank you for mentioning that. I do want to give a shout out to my collaborators at uh, University of Washington's Urban Freight Lab who were instrumental in different stages of this uh, this research. And there's a lot of exciting research going on in this field right now. So cargo bikes is one of the things that you mentioned that is really exciting to me. I think in the presentation that you mentioned, uh, my colleague had a couple of pictures of me on different cargo bikes. And uh, yes, I do want to ride them as well. The other research that uh, is very interesting to me about uh, in this field uh, is micro hubs. So they are uh, they have different names. They are being called urban consolidation centers, micro hubs, or delivery hubs. And the idea behind them is that instead of large trucks or delivery vehicles going into the congested downtown areas of the cities, uh, there would be these hubs a little bit like slightly outside the downtown core, that larger vehicles go into those places and they, they deliver everything there and the packages are being sorted and consolidated. And then the last mile of delivery is being done by smaller, cleaner and greener vehicles like cargo bikes. So those research uh, about, as I mentioned, micro hubs or urban consolidation centers is another research that is very interesting and exciting, especially now that Talking about sustainability and uh, greener solutions in the last mile is an important issue that uh, people are talking about and paying attention to. We're running out of time here, unfortunately. Uh, we do want to thank uh, Anishay Ranjbari uh, of re just of Penn State, just three or four weeks. So you're now a Nittany Lion and you were at Washington before. I guess they're the Cougars, right? <laughs> at Washington, there were Huskies. Oh, that's right, the Huskies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. So anyway, we want to thank her for joining us here today on Drilling Deep to talk about a couple of solutions regarding urban freight, which is a hot new area. Uh, you have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of Freightwaves. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. Uh, I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again. 